Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I am, of course, your host, Pastor Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania, and it's so good to uh, be able to share some thoughts with you again, uh, to be able to reflect on a lot of things that I've been reading and studying and chewing on, and uh, thank you for clicking play and allowing me to think out loud about theology, about ministry, about growing in the faith, and uh, really that's where we all are. We're all in that same exact spot. We're not, we don't have to worry about who's uh, growing f- more or growing faster than the other. We're all growing Christians who uh, are having the Lord work on us, chisel away uh, the old man, uh, as it says everywhere in Paul's epistles, and so that we might be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's that's really what this is all about. Uh, it's just my way of perhaps helping you along uh, as you uh, are growing in your own faith. So hopefully you've been enjoying these, and uh, as uh, I'm I'm doing my best. <laughs> I'm doing my best to get on a sort of every other week schedule. We'll see how that goes. I don't really know, uh, but <laughs> um, I'm I'm thankful for uh, just the opportunity uh, to just think out loud. So that's what I want to do. Uh, and I have a lot to cover today. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the therapeutic gospel. If you don't know what that means, hopefully I explain that in a little bit with the help of a fellow. Uh, writer whose name is also Brad, so I'm going to uh, talk about that in a minute. Uh, the testimony of the YouTube or the U2 singer Bono, as well as what it means by pastoral remit or the way in which a pastor goes about his ministry responsibilities. So, anyways, I'm going to talk about all that. Hopefully, you'll be encouraged by it. Hopefully, you will be blessed uh, by all those topics, and uh, uh, maybe you can um, let me know at the end of all of it. So uh, without further ado, uh, we're going to get into the show. Here's a note from uh, the sponsor, which of course is Fresh Roasted Coffee. Proud to uh, help them out, and they are a a great uh, coffee company to be uh, partnering with. So uh, we're going to hear from that, and then we'll jump in to the rest of what I have for you today. So thanks for clicking play, and we'll get right to it in just a second. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about Fresh Roasted Coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances. Fresh Roasted Coffee roasts their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door, meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability. That's what I like. I was introduced to Fresh Roasted Coffee soon after moving to Central Pennsylvania, and I'm so happy I was because I think it's literally the best coffee out there. Their Blackbeard's Revenge blend is out of this world good. Whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour-over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code GRACE10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. So uh, what about this? Um, I want to talk about some of the recent articles that Brad East 
has put up on his blog. You can go over, uh, you can, I, I've linked both of them that I'm going to reference and uh, read from today. Um, but Brad East is a teacher, a professor, a theolo- uh, theology professor out in Abilene, Texas. Um, and he has a couple of articles that he kind of, where he kind of deals, interacts with this idea of what he calls either the therapeutic church or and or the therapeutic gospel. Uh, one of his articles, A Therapeutic Church is an Atheist Church, which is a, I would say, a pretty provocative title, a pretty um, eye-catching blog title. It's an excellent, excellent article that in which he sort of reviews and interacts with a lot of thoughts uh, shared by some other writers. But what he does is he really condenses all of that. He synthesizes all of that. And he kind of just talks about uh, the way that churches have kind of, uh, or how churches are kind of functioning by and large across the United States. And essentially what Brad is arguing for is that we've really diminished the the purview and the power and the profundity, we could even say, of the gospel by making it about more and more things. And essentially what we've done, by and large, is we've made the gospel essentially akin to therapy, which in a way actually reduces, not in a way, it really does, it really reduces uh, the resonance of the gospel itself. So I'm not going to try and pontificate. I'm just going to let uh, this fellow Brad sort of have the microphone. He writes this, quote, if the gospel is interchangeable with counseling, then people should stop attending church and hire counselors instead. Why not go straight to the source? Why settle for second best? If a minister is merely a so-so therapist with Jesus sprinkled on top, then parishioners can sleep in on Sundays, drop Jesus, and get professional therapy as they please whenever they wish. I promise you, if that is what you're after, or excuse me, I promise you, if what you're after is 21st century quality therapy, neither Holy Scripture nor the Divine Liturgy is the thing for you, which is, uh, just end quote for a second, I think this is a very provocative thing that he's saying, but I think it's very, very accurate. If the gospel, if the message that is contained within the scriptures is nothing more, can be condensed to nothing more than just, here, let me help you get better. Here, let me make your life better in the here and now. Um, Let me help you um, get through um, some such quandary or whatever. Uh, You're reducing the gospel to therapy, to something that you could get from somewhere else, to um, just go to some such counselor and receive their aid. And what he's saying, I think, is it's, it's, it's perhaps not something we always think about out loud. Maybe we have some of these thoughts, but he, here Brad is expressing, I think, exactly what makes the gospel so unique, is that it offers something that you can't find anywhere else. And he goes on to talk about that. And he goes on to say, I think, something even more that, okay, if you've reduced the gospel away from the forgiveness of sins into here's how your life can be better, here's how we can make your life easier, you're actually not just easing into a therapeutic gospel, you're actually functionally discipling your church into becoming a quasi-atheistic church. Listen to what he says, quote, continuing, Hence, Brad continues, a therapeutic church is an atheist church. 
Not because therapy is anti-gospel, not because therapeutic churches are consciously atheistic. No, a therapeutic church is an atheist church because it has lost its reason for existing. It preaches a gospel without God. Which is not only an oxymoron, but a wholesale inversion of the good news. The gospel is, as St. Paul puts it, the good news of God. And if, as he puts it elsewhere, God has not raised Jesus from the dead, we of all people are most to be pitied. Brad continues, God is not a therapist. And his principal goal in Christ is not to ensure a high degree of mental health in the context of a larger, successful venture in upper-middle-class professional family life. God, rather, is in the business of holiness And as Stanley Howarus has observed, vanishingly few of the saints would qualify as well-adjusted. The more, Brad continues, however, a a congregation becomes therapeutic in its language, its liturgy, its morals, its common life, the more God recedes from the picture. God becomes secondary, then tertiary, then ornamental, then metaphorical, then finally superfluous. The old-timers keep God on, mostly out of muscle memory, but the younger generations know the score. They don't quit church and stop believing in God because of a lack of catechesis, as if that, as if they weren't listening on Sundays. They were listening all right. The catechesis didn't fail. It worked only too well. The 20 and 30-somethings were being preached right out of the gospel, albeit with the best of intentions and a smile on every minister and usher's face. They smiled back and headed for the exit sign, end quote. I think this is... <laughs> A somewhat devastating, <laughs> a somewhat devastating sort of analysis that I think is regrettably spot on, and it's regrettably spot on because you can see it everywhere. If the, the the divine proclamation of reconciliation in Christ's blood is not central, is not at the very core of what a church does, then by and large, slowly but you can definitely count on it, you can say slowly but surely that church is going to veer into a therapeutic gospel, which, as Brad here has just explained, that actually leads towards a church of a bunch of atheists. Because then God is not central. He becomes almost an ornament of how we can make our lives better. And eventually, if you take that logic to its extreme, it ends up having God rendered mostly to the sidelines. As we fix ourselves, as we uh, work on ourselves, as we better ourselves. And as he says, this is really what has led to this great movement of the quote-unquote religious nuns. You, you see those surveys, how uh, most people in the United States, or, or fewer than ever before, right, have, have said that they are not Christian, or, 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 or fewer than ever before have said that they are Christian. I, I, I said that wrong. Um, and I think uh, instead of instead of pointing the finger at the culture, at Hollywood, or or what have you, actually I think what we should be doing is pointing the finger back at ourselves, at the church, at the messages that we're that we're proclaiming, that we're that we're promoting, 
If you, if you boil down what is the common theme in most, uh, maybe you would say I'm, I'm, I'm arguing from a straw man sort of position, but I would say if you, if you by and large re- reduce what a lot of churches preach, what a lot of, uh, what a lot of the rhetoric that is coming out of pulpits is, it's the gospel is therapy. It helps you get better. And as Brad has just said, if that's what you're after, <laughs> you can go somewhere else and find that therapy probably more easily, perhaps with less fellow people who need the same thing, which causes friction. As I've said before, unless you really truly know um, that you are a sinner, then you then, then church is going to be a frustration to you. I think all of this is just to say that what we say in church matters a lot. It evidences what we value and, and what we think of what God's message is to us and for us. Why should we expect young people to stay in church when we re- reduce the gospel to a solution that's found elsewhere? You know, it, this gets back to the point of church and the point of preaching in the first place. It's not therapy. It's not activism. It's not anything else. The church exists to proclaim the good news in Christ, of God's glory in Christ's redemption of sinners by suffering on the cross and resurrecting from the dead on the third day. Period. That's why the church exists, and it, and it pushes back the darkness by proclaiming the message of the light. I think we put the cart before the horse oftentimes by preaching things when we don't even have the right foundation first. Brad dives deeper into this topic in a follow-up article where he writes this, quote, The more sin drops out of the grammar of the Christian life, the more the cross of Jesus becomes unintelligible. So much so that children and teenagers can't articulate even in basic terms why Jesus came to earth, died, and rose again. This is where therapy enters in. Self-image and self-esteem and mental health having taken over load-bearing duty in Christian grammar, replacing concepts like sin and righteousness, holiness and justification, atonement and deliverance, the Christian life comes to be understood as the achievement of a certain well-adjusted standing in the world. The aim is to find emotional, physical, financial, relational, vocational, and spiritual balance. The aim, in a word, is health, and it is utterly this-worldly, end quote. You see, you see what happens. If we don't want to talk about sin, we don't want to offend people, we don't want to lose the people who are coming into our church, we want to attract them by having a message that is easy to hear, that speaks to them, and so we reduce the gospel, the gospel becomes a therapy seminar, it becomes as a way that you can find financial health, relational health, vocational health, spiritual health, physical health, you can find all of those things in balance with a quote-unquote twist that sometimes has a little bit of sprinkling of scripture in Jesus, but but other, otherwise, for all intents and purposes, this is just therapy being worked out in a large congregational setting. It's nothing but moralistic therapeutic deism rearing its ugly head all over again. And Brad writes this as he continues saying, quote, A therapeutic gospel that has excised sin from the Christian social imagination. Uh, 
uh, imagery not only reduces God to a bit of inert furniture in a lifelong counseling session, it's also bad for mental health. If preaching never shows me my bondage, how can I ever ask God to unshackle me? much less accept his offer to do so. Preaching, rightly understood, is nothing other than the weekly heralding of this very offer, the offer of freedom to sinners. End quote. And I think, <laughs> I think what is so important there is the offer of freedom to sinners through the shed blood of Christ, his remission of sins by him dying, by taking your place. I, I'm adamant, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get fired up here, and maybe in a little bit, but may I actually am already am. Uh, I, I take the my my job as a preacher really seriously, and not just because I like to preach. I, I do. It, I think it's a spiritual gift. I think God has given me, and I, I I enjoy the art of preaching. I enjoy the anticipation of preaching. I enjoy the practice of preaching. But more and more, I, I, I recognize, I would say, I'm being impressed with, I would even say, the, the resonance, the weightiness of preaching. I don't have, I don't have the the wherewithal or the bandwidth when I stand behind a pulpit to play around with the message that Christ has given me. How, how dare I sort of mess around with the message that Jesus has given us in his word? It is my job, and this is not original with me. I, I, I forget who first, I think it was Mark Dever, who sort of uh, came up with this sort of a way to understand the the function of a preacher is what you function as a mail carrier your job is not to perhaps open up the mail and read it for the person that you're delivering you're delivering mail <laughs> you're delivering god's good news which is just to say when that delivery is 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 sort of affected by the holy spirit what is contained in that application is sometimes different for different people but the message the the function of the preacher is still the same you're delivering mail and it's not yours to change or adjust to open and 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 edit and and do all those sorts of things your job is to deliver <laughs> that's my job and it it doesn't involve being a, a therapist, and, and again, I would I would make the same note that Brad East does in these articles. That doesn't mean that therapy is anti-Christian. I would say wholeheartedly no to that. I, I think there's several, <laughs> more than several, good examples even from my own life that I could give you where therapy is not only good but necessary, and it's something that I think has been demonized in some Christian circles very unnecessarily. But I would say, when we're talking about the gospel, the proclamation of Christ, we make it therapeutic, and we do so to our own, to our own destruction. It's, it's self-deception to think that that type of gospel can render anyone free. It cannot. It shackles. It enslaves. The gospel of therapy of the idea that that the scriptures were given to better ourselves, to to make us uh, sort of in all of these ways uh, uh, healthy and and well again, 
The gospel is about resurrecting dead people back to spiritual life so that they may walk in newness of life. That's way deeper and way more resonant and way more important and way more relevant than being told how to have better financial success if you just believe or or what have you. You know, it's that prosperity message. And and I and I would I would agree with some people who would maybe push back here, but yeah, I agree. There's there's some way in which we've demonized the prosperity gospel, but I think in other ways, necessarily so. Because what it does is it it veers off of what is so central. What it makes a church a church, what makes a Christian a Christian, what makes someone who believes in Christ have Christ. It's the proclamation of the Christian message of the gospel that says Christ has taken my sins by being made sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Which goes back to, my job as a preacher is to declare the law and the gospel. Because it's only that news that I think allows us to face what is so starkly uh, horrible in our own lives while also giving us the good news that we are not condemned because of Christ. You know, if we are, if, if, if you don't want to hear the bad news, what are you going to do? You're going to try and avoid it. As, as Brad has articulated, you're going to erase uh, rhetoric about sin and preaching about sin and failure out of your churches and what ends up happening is you you lose the gospel. And I think that that analysis sort of sums up a lot of what is tending towards, I would say, the decline of the modern church. And, and I'm not trying to be this like sort of doom and gloom prognosticator here. I'm just saying you can sense in which, and you can see it, you, you, can, you can see it when a church has veered off when a preacher has veered off. And really, they might be talking about a lot of good things, and maybe even quasi-Christian things, but there's no Christ there. And actually, that leads me to my recommendation to you. I cannot recommend enough reading Michael Horton's Christless Christianity. It is I would even dare I say it's a timeless book, but it's a book that actually follows right along with Brad East's sort of analysis here and these two articles talking about the therapeutic gospel and the therapeutic church and all that kind of stuff. Michael Horton takes a lot of that type of preaching to task and shows how it's it doesn't really have Christ at all in it. So if your preaching doesn't have Christ at all in it, can you really call it preaching? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. I strongly encourage you to read Brad East's articles, reflect on them, chew on them, really digest them, and really, really ponder what he's saying about the necessity of, yes, preaching about sin, but that leads us to preach about Christ. And then also highly recommend Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity. It, it speaks so well to this. And I would say, I, I, I think there's yeah, I think it was released back in 2008 or so, um, but it is just as relevant for our day in talking about what is maybe not just what's wrong, but what is necessary to sort of correct some of the ills that come along with the modern the modern church and the modern way in which the pulpit is 
is viewed and and that ministry is carried out. So um, read that stuff. I, I, I could talk a lot more about this, but I'm going to save that. Um, I'm working on a couple of different pieces that kind of go along with this that interact with some of Brad's and some of Michael's um, writings, but also some other stuff. So I'm going to save some of that. And uh, But just know I'm very passionate about um, what preaching is and what it should look like. And, and this is not to say that I think I've figured it all out. It's just to say that I, I, str- I, I strongly believe in what I think Christ has revealed and what Christ has uttered in terms of what makes something Christian. And it is the proclamation of Christ. Um, may, may Stonington Baptist Church and may all of of my lines of ministry ever be drawn towards the center, which is Christ. That, that May he always be at the center of all of my ministerial endeavors, and may you be able to same, say the same as well. Um, so moving on, um, I'll save some of those thoughts for a little bit later. Uh, what's been helpful? Uh, a helpful article to me uh, actually appeared late last year, but I've been kind of saving and hovering around it for a while. And uh, I just wanted to just talk through it because I think it's I think it's fantastic. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations in a similar sort of vein, so to speak, about uh, this idea. And uh, that's very vague, but I'll I'll talk about it in a second. But uh, so Christianity Today, uh, a guy who works over there, Mike Cosper, you might know him. He was the host of that very famous podcast last year, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Um, Mike Cosper, he recently was able to interview uh, the front man for the rock band U2, uh, commonly known as Bono, but his name is Paul David Hewson, um, the lead singer of U2. And uh, remarkably, the band uh, has been going strong for over 40 years. And, um, you know, of course, Bono is no stranger to headlines. He says some things and does some things and stands for things that I disagree with, and I would say some other Christians do as too, but by every single account, he's a Christian, one who believes in the saving grace of Jesus Christ, which is so fascinating to me because he plays for and writes and sings in a band that isn't, quote-unquote, overtly Christian. But um, I... uh, I find his testimony to be one that is truly, um, truly enrapturing and, and sort of captivating. Um, Bono says this in the Cosper interview. He says, "Quote: The Bible held me wrapped. The words po- stepped off the page and followed me home. I found more than poetry in that Gothic King James script. I'd always be first up when." There was an altar call, the come-to-Jesus moment, and I still am. If I was in a cafe right now and someone says, stand up if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, I'd be the first to my feet. I took Jesus with me everywhere, and I still do. And I think this is what is an interesting topic of discussion, right, is what makes something, quote-unquote, Christian. Is it the naming of Christ or of Christian doctrine within lyrics or songs, or is it the way in which those lyrics and songs, sort of the message that they convey perhaps underneath the surface? Um, and I think that's what's interesting. U2's, U2's songs don't maybe perhaps explicitly contain lyrics that worship 
Christ, but I would say, and even I, I have a very limited knowledge of their discography, if you will, but um, a lot of them are imbued with this sense of awe for the light of the world, even if they don't necessarily quote scripture, so to speak. And uh, so in in a follow-up to this this interview that was on Christianity Today, um, writer Brian Matson, he is a, a lot longer of a YouTube uh, sort of uh, fan and listener. He sums up all of this as his own reflection um, on the interview and YouTube itself. Uh, he So Brian writes this, quote, In that Cosper essay, Bono hilariously relates the story of Franklin Graham, picking him up from the airport. Bono recites the whole conversation, which consisted of Franklin asking him repeatedly if he was really a Christian. When he kept getting the same answer, he finally asks, then why are your songs not about Jesus? Bono replied, they are. Bono's view of music meshes well with something T-Bone Burnett once said, if Jesus is the light of the world, then there are two kinds of songs you can write. You can write about the light, or you can write what you can see by the light. And I think this is something to reflect on, maybe perhaps in your own setting, in your own sort of context, or or what have you. But I, I think there's something to be said about Christian songs that aren't quoting Scripture, but they're revealing the thrust and the message of what the Bible conveys. And yeah, maybe you... You don't like YouTube's, U2's music, but I, I think, and maybe you would disagree with a lot of where Bono comes down on certain doctrines or issues, and that's fair. Um, but I think there's something to be said about someone glorifying God through using his skills in a way that reaches a wider audience. And as he says, he the songs are about Christ, they are about Jesus, and they're sort of showcasing what can be seen when the light of the world comes. And I think if you have that sort of mindset, um, I think it changes the way you listen to certain songs. But anyway, I I challenge you, read that interview, um, and then go back and re-listen to some of U2's songs, and especially the song Where the Streets Have No Name. I think it'll kind of change the way you listen to that. Switching gears, um, this is a big switching gears. Uh, We're going from Christianity Today interviewing Bono to a very reformed uh, article over on R. Scott Clark's Idol blog. <laughs> so it's a yeah, pretty pretty. Uh, there's no easy way to transition there. So we're just going to transition. But I found this article really helpful. I'm going to read quite extensively from it and then comment on it at the end. But um, Harrison Perkins. Uh, has a great guest article over on the Heidel blog, the uh, the ministry of R. Scott Clark. He's a professor in a lot of Reformed uh, seminaries. And um, Harrison writes in an article entitled, Abuse, Burnout, and Pastoral Remit. Remit is a word which means responsibility, and basically talks about uh, pretty extensively how um, pastors... Uh, get burned out, and it, we could say how actually, uh, actually, I should say how pastoral abuse and pastoral burnout are actually downstream of the same thing, which is a pastor's inability or failure to understand what falls within their remit or responsibility. And he writes this. So just listen as I as I as I read what Harrison writes. He says this quote: When a pastor 
thinks that his responsibility is to fix people, he will inevitably distort his calling's remit responsibility and fall prey to the abusive temptation or to the tyranny of exhaustion. Thinking we can help people is different from thinking we can fix them. Helping people in various ways is one of the foundational premises of the pastoral call. Helping, however, means coming alongside God's people in a host of ways for their benefit as they go through the joys and sorrows of life. On the other hand, fixing people means solving their issues. Two problems arise from this distinction, particularly if we drift into thinking we should fix people. First, our perception of what needs fixing is imperfect. We start adding people's flaws, personality issues, and lackluster preferences to the list of things that we ought to improve. After all, they are not fixed if we can find something unacceptable about them. Second, we are not truly able to fix someone. Pastors who get trapped by the first problem succumb to the temptation to abuse, and pastors who keep a humble heart get snagged by the second problem and face burnout. On the one hand, in our desire to fix people, we convince ourselves that we have the right to have that we have the right insight into exactly what people need to be. We think that our job is not done until all the dots for the life of every member in our church are connected. We become more about getting people to be models of stoicism than about encouraging character formation. All the more, pastors who see their remit and responsibility as fixing people tend to make themselves the baseline. He becomes his own standard for bringing everyone else into, into line. He develops a controlling tendency because he is just trying to do his job, but that can only happen when everyone has listened to him. So results the mindset that people should do what we say because I'm your minister. The vocational label of pastor denotes and connotes shepherding care, while the title of minister suggests that sort of set-apart authority figure. We must realize that pastors are not meant, or excuse me, let me rephrase that. We must realize that pastors are meant to serve, help, and support, but not fix. Mainly, we are not called to fix people because it cannot be done this side of heaven and because no sufficient measuring stick for fixed exists in reality. I do not have to turn back all their tears. I do not have to explain away all their sadness. Indeed, people are usually helped more if I try to do neither, but rather share their tears and sadness with them. Certainly, this approach is more emotionally taxing during a given visit or meeting, but I am far more thoroughly rested and at ease in my vocation overall. I carry the burden of weeping with others and of praying with them and for them with true fervency, but I do not lie down at night regretting how I was unable to solve the world's every problem. Rather, I trust the Lord to care for his people and recognize that people love their pastor for pointing them consistently and faithfully to Christ for the joy and hope that he offers no matter our earthly circumstances. I have found that God's people seem to be most deeply moved, not when I am quick to offer advice for how to fix their lives according to my insight, but when I am quick to pray sincere prayers for their needs, to connect the dots. Prayer is the most pointed acknowledgement of my inability to fix them and of God's ability to be good to his people when we are at a loss. End quote. <laughs> There's a lot there that Harrison covers. <laughs> Number one, I would just say, read this whole thing for yourself. But I think what Harrison is, is, is doing here is just, again, so, so trenchant and so spot on. 
and what he has assessed to be a lot of the reasons why pastoral abuses seem to perpetuate, but also why pastors seem to get burned out. And I think you can boil it down to this idea that we've seen the pastor as a fixer, (laughs) as someone who can come in and just sprinkle Jesus over our problems, and then everything can be resolved. And that's not always the case. That's not always... I would say that's not what a pastor's remit, his responsibility is. He's not called to be a fixer. He's called to be a proclaimer and a shepherd, one who tends to needy sheep, not by always fixing their problems, but by administering the wisdom of the Word and of the Spirit to them, both by preaching and by uh, visiting and by conversation. It's through the Word, primarily, that all of that caregiving is done. And I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the therapeutic idea of church and of the of the gospel. If you think that it's about fixing and the pastor doesn't fix your problems, you're going to run into an issue where your expectations are being unmet when in actuality those expectations are misguided. The pastor is not your fixer. He's your pastor, he's your shepherd, who's come to conduct and lead and shepherd you in the word, in the wisdom of God's will, in the wisdom of God's revealed word that we have in front of us. And I think what Harrison gets at is an important reminder, not just for the congregation, but of course, but I think for churches, but also for pastors and pastoral staffs, the weight of the ability to fix people isn't on the pastor's shoulders. If it was, that would be a, that, that's a burden I can't carry. I'm just being honest. Um, and I think that's where prayer comes in. I love how he, Harrison includes that at the end of what he's writing. His conclusion is what? Prayer puts us in that position where we give all of our, our hope for fixing we acknowledge that we are in, uh, incapable of doing that, and we're entrusting that fixing ministry, so to speak, to the Spirit, knowing that He's the He's the true Comforter. He's the He's the true Paraclete, the one who comes to the aid of those who are at a loss. And I think that what this does is it puts all of our spheres of ministry back into their proper context both for the congregant and for the congregation's leader, the pastor himself. And I think that this all comes full circle into saying that why does the church exist? The church exists to make disciples through the proclamation of the word and the observance of the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And as my prayer and sort of just closing out this particular episode, I just pray that you're in a church where both of those things happen on a regular basis. I, I, I don't pray that you're in a church where you hear how you can be better. I pray that you're in a church that preaches the good news of God's reconciliation of sinners through his son's shed blood. We are reconciled to God, and he... It, it, makes reconciliation for us on our behalf by sending his own son to die on our behalf. 
That's the ministry and the message of the church. If the church doesn't preach that, what else, what are we really even doing? That's why I pray at my church, I, I, I pray constantly that God keeps me in that lane. <laughs> I don't want to veer anywhere else because I know nothing else that I have to offer is truly helpful, but also I pray that others call me out if they see any sense of veering or going off into some some such other thing. There's nothing else that you need or I need other than the proclamation of good news. And that comes through the word and through the sacraments, through the spirit. This is what's offered to us in the gospel. This is what we have um, this is what we have. This is the truth that we possess. If you say you believe in Christ, this is what we possess. It's, it's already yours. So I, I pray you're encouraged. I pray that you're blessed. I pray that you realize what is within your sphere of responsibility and what isn't. And I pray beyond anything else that you know for certain that the center of all that a church is and does, that all that a, a Christian is and does is always Christ. May we never veer off of that. Thanks for listening. Hope you've been blessed by this episode. Subscribe to Ministry Minded on Apple, on Spotify, on Substack, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for your encouragement. Thanks for your support. Uh, Thanks for listening. Uh, Comment below if there's something that impacted you or something that you'd like to just uh, make a note on. And, And again, thank you so much. See you on the next episode. Blessings.